Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 1055, air date May 9th, 2022. Good afternoon, everyone. It's Dr. Shiva Ayadure. I'm going to be doing a talk today on why we need to learn how to think and why this is really important for our children. That's what I'm going to talk about today. Um, before I begin that, I want to just take a couple of moments to share with you um, what I did on my hiatus, essentially, for the last about a month to two months, in fact, six to six weeks to eight weeks from social media. Um, and then some of the reflections I've had and what I'm gonna share with you today. And it's essentially going to hopefully provide you a perspective over the next six months of where our movement's gonna be moving to, uh, our educational movement for truth, freedom and health on system thinking, et cetera. One of the important things I wanted to share with everyone was um, over the last uh, six to eight weeks, I actually, I haven't gone back to India in a long, long time. It's almost been uh, with the quote unquote pandemic in the last seven years, I used to go back to India uh, probably once every two years. And I haven't done that for almost seven years. So uh, this time I went back to India. In fact, I went back to my village, uh, which is in deep, deep, deep South India. If you look at the map of India, you'll see India is shaped like a triangle at the bottom. And uh, India has about, you know, 22, 27 states. Um, and it's changing constantly, but I went back to the state of Tamil Nadu, T-A-M-I-L-N-A-D-U. It's on the southeast coast of India. Um, the main city, there's a city called Chennai, which used to be called Madras. And our village is way down even south. Um, in fact, if you go from Chennai, you have to go west and then south, so southwest. And it's um, in a place called Rajapalayam. And the village is Muhur, M-U-H-A-V-O-O-R. Muham in Tamil means face. And it's actually the place where two, in ancient times, two of these warring kings met to actually come to terms and actually have peace. So it's called Muha, which means face, the land where two faces met. But I went back because it's a very special place for me. It's um, where I was inspired to pursue my interest in medicine and also my interest in systems and politics, et cetera. And so, you know, I did a couple of posts on social media, but I really didn't do any videos. And I really took sort of a, I sort of did a fast in some ways to do some serious reflection. And part of that reflection was looking at the journey that we've all been on, um, you know, my personal journey um, going back to 1963, being born in India, coming to the United States in 1970, going through the process of um, working very hard to fulfill a lot of the promises I'd made to myself in honor and respect to all the, um, you know, the wonderful gifts I was given from my ancestors, plus from this, from the United States. And the, uh, the work I did as a kid in starting to do medical research at the age of 14 was inspired by that inventing email, learning about systems, uh, doing different degrees, starting companies. So I reflected on all of that. And over the last three, four years, um, starting in 2016, 
um, actually it's been six years, 17 running for office. And then, and sort of the journey I went through to bringing the knowledge of engineering systems even to the political sphere, independent of the medical sphere. And so I went through that reflection and I'll share with you some of the uh, insights that I had and then looking forward to what we should do in the future to really um, make the world a better place to put it simply. And one of the things I recognized was that um, when you're in India, you recognize that the parents in India, particularly even today, um, they really have a great respect for education. Because if you grow up very poor with nothing, and you realize you live in a very corrupt environment, um, the only objective way for you to make it out of there, in fact, you have a glimmer of hope, is if you get educated. In India, at the time when my parents were young, um, growing up in the 1940s, um, the caste system was extremely strong in India. Now there's some awakening, more awakening about it. And for them to make it out of that was quite extraordinary. Uh, my mom, as a young woman who came from a broken household, the father had run off, realized that she frankly couldn't depend on anyone. So she went and got educated. In fact, she got a degree in mathematics and a degree in statistics um, at a time when women, particularly of her background, were never supposed to get educated. My dad, who had grown up in war-torn war Burma, he got his first book when he was sitting uh, when he came back to India uh, and he learned under a mango tree on an old blackboard uh, writing with chalk that he would actually make. And I went back to that school, which is also in that town. And um, I haven't shared this with a lot of people, but I was proud to see that, you know, I had donated money to build several wings of that, uh, of the school where now we educate 1,500, 2,000 kids who are out outside sitting under the rain. Um, so it was all really good to see all of this and remember where I came from. And what I recognized was that was that education is ultimately the way out, which I've talked about. Now, in the modern world, in the United States, what's happened is the educational system essentially takes our kids and tells them what to think. Um, it, it is really not teaching them how to think or it doesn't teach them to think, in fact. And in the current world, we live in a world of complex systems, which I've talked about. And without the ability to think in this world of system thinking, you can literally just control people by telling them what to think. And so when I wrote System and Revolution, which, by the way, I've made, I'll talk about this. This book is now made free for everyone because I think this is um, a book that every child should have, every adult should have. And I say that not to just get this book out or my name out there, but because the knowledge and the curriculum in this book is really necessary for our times and it's what is really going to make the change. And when I reflected over the last four or five years, I realized that all of you, the videos we've done, the educational stuff, the movement on the ground, the campaign we ran had had a tremendous impact. Uh, I was walking around in India, be it a small village or a big mall in the city, and people would come, random people would say, hey, I saw this video that you did on the election systems. I can't believe the US election system is this bad. Or, hey, I saw the facts that you invented email. What a racist bunch of people those liberals are at Wikipedia. Or thank you so much for your video. It really helped me through the quote unquote pandemic. I learned about all the uh, 
supplements, um, et cetera. Um, when I was coming on the plane back, um, the American Airlines, some of the stewardesses on there, you know, they have now changed their policy to remove uh, no more masks on there. And they said, you know, thank you so much, Dr. Shiva. We watched your video and explaining to us um, what the real issue with masks are. So our movement, not just the videos I did, but all of you getting on the ground, taking the courses, has had a massive impact that Tucker Carlson will never talk about, that the mainstream media will never talk about. But if you really look at it objectively, it was our movement, because we took the systems approach, is the one that really exposed the foundations of this quote unquote pandemic, what the real issues were, that the real issue is that we have something called the immune system and that we need to boost it. We got hundreds of millions of views on our, our, our videos uh, before the censorship took place, but we impacted a lot of people. We've saved a lot of people's lives through our video and gave people a whole new perspective. And that was, you know, on the health side, the immune system stuff, talking about what the real issue is with the quote unquote pro or anti-vax movement that is beyond vax and anti-vax. It's really about the right medicine for the right person at the right time. And that concept, that systems approach has affected hundreds of millions of people, or one could argue probably billions of people all, all over the world. And then we were then brought into the entire issue when I ran for office, as many of you participated in helping us all over the world at, or in the United States where we found out that in the United States elections are frankly selections. It was our movement that really brought to the forefront that irrespective of the right wing or the left wing, there's a lot of people on the left who deny there's a problem. And then there's a lot of crazy nut jobs on the right who try to, I don't know, talk about China or someone else doing it, which I've been critical of. Our movement took an objective role beyond left and right and showed that there are significant issues within, within the chain of custody issue, within the fact that election officials are allowing systems to be in place that violate US federal law. We went after the real heart of the issues and more recently we talked about the signature verification system, how that's flawed. And this was beyond left or right. And we actually spoke about the real issues when ProPublica, this quote unquote research organization called me um, they thought they were going to get some crazy right-wing nutjob type of stuff out of me. And I basically said, look, there's people on the right who are saying crazy things that are not true. And there's people on the left who deny it. We take a systems approach. And the guy said, wow, I get it. But he wanted to create a, the dialectic. And fortunately, we published the interview I had with him. And when he did his long-form report, he leaves us out of it because we weren't creating this duality. And, that's, and we've educated people on that. And then when it came to the real free speech issues, it was our movement, which brought to the forefront from our historic lawsuit, that it is not big tech, which is the problem. It is much deeper. It is the fact that the governments of the world have created a unholy alliance with big tech. And it's not gonna be a billionaire buying a big tech organization and just talking about free speech, free speech, free speech that's going to change that unless you expose this unholy alliance. And I suppose if you're a billionaire and you're getting subsidies and you've created businesses from government, you're probably not going to want to show that, but you may want to act as though you're a populist to create the dialectic that one wing of the establishment 
you know, wants to create ministries of truth and you are going to be putting out truth. But the reality is that big tech, since at least 2018, our movement showed the fundamental issues that there's an unholy alliance between government and big tech. I was thrown off Twitter, not by Twitter, but by the government of Massachusetts who had Twitter silence me. We expose the concept of laundering speech, laundering censorship, governments launder censorship. So any billionaire who thinks or gets people excited they're gonna do something, but if they don't address that issue, it's you could consider them part of the not so obvious establishment and you can do your own research on this. But one of the important things I wanna talk about, which I've talked about many times, is that when we take a systems approach, we need to get over something called reductionism. And in System and Revolution, I talk about it. And before I sort of sign off for today, I want to read you and I want to encourage everyone to get this. And by the way, we've made the book absolutely free. Uh, let me just put up the little banner here. If you go to vashiva.com slash join, you can get it for free. You just have to cover shipping and handling. Um, I think it's a pretty good offer. But there are many good chapters in here, but this book is really a consolidation of about 50 years of engineering systems theory. You know, in the village that I grew up in India, there was a very great man who, uh, who also came from the nearby village. His name was Kamaraj. This guy only had an eighth grade education. Um, at that time in India in the 40s, the upper caste elites, the Brahmins, would say, oh, the lower castes are dumb and they're stupid. And, you know, they shouldn't be educated. So people of my background weren't supposed to get educated because we were fundamentally stupid. What Kamraj did was he realized that there was an interconnection between liberation and health. He realized most of the lower caste people weren't getting any food. They weren't get, They were too poor. They weren't getting access to protein. So he implemented this school lunch program, which gave people protein albeit it came from vegetable protein, but it was protein within one generation, you see people's education improve, they graduate high school, college, and I was a direct product of that interconnection between health and truth and science. So he had a systems approach. So I wanna just read you this chapter from a book and I'll let you go, but um, I'm committed to being back, at least doing a video a day for all of you and the trajectory we're gonna always talk about in our videos is the interconnection between freedom, truth, and health. If I do a science video, you'll see the fact that even in science or in health, those in power suppress one aspect of science. They don't allow discourse. So truth is shunned or truth is compromised and then our health is compromised. But let me read, just read you from chapter two. This is what it says. It says, it says, Alex is a 41-year-old man, the father of two children who lives in New England. He has a twin brother and two sisters and is close to his extended family. He is five foot nine and weighs 196 pounds, 30 pounds more than when he played on his college tennis team. Alex works in the computer industry. He spends most of his days and many of his nights hunkered down in front of a monitor. The only exercise he gets is playing with his children, but they're mostly interested in electronic games. Those are the facts about Alex, but who is he really? The truth is he's many things to many people. To his doctor, for example, Alex is a man who should lose weight and lower slightly elevated blood pressure. The doctor has given him three months to accomplish this through diet and exercise. If that doesn't work, 
Alex will have to start taking medication. Five years ago on his first visit to, his, to this doctor, Alex shared a memory from his teenage years. He was home from a school on a snowy day, helped his father shovel the driveway. Then his father suddenly collapsed with chest pains and Alex called the emergency hotline 911. 911, sorry. The doctor knows that Alex's father was a, has a pacemaker and, and, and that Alex doesn't want that for himself. The doctor also knows that Alex, who inherited his mother's fair skin, has had surgery for a patch of squamous cell skin cancer on his nose. Alex has promised his wife and his mother they will never again go fishing or do anything out in the sun without first covering himself with sunscreen. But Alex is more than a collection of symptoms. He presents to his MD. To his wife, he's a loving husband who likes to bake bread and make pasta for the family. He spends too much time on his computer. Sometimes he snores at nights. At night. To his parents, Alex is a devoted son who calls regularly and is always available to help out. To his co-workers, he's a hardworking employee who has an intricate knowledge of the newest technology. To his twin brother, with whom he shares a close but sometimes competitive relationship, he's a best friend and a formidable chess opponent. To his children, he is, Daddy, Daddy, play with me. I need more batteries. Will you fix this? Can we go to the park? To his dog, he's a guy who throws a ball further than anyone else. So who is Alex? There's no single answer. The dilemma of who is he, for that matter, who am I, is as old as time. An ancient parable makes this point. A group of disciples approach the Buddha with some serious questions about whether the world is finite or infinite and whether the human soul dies or lives forever. The Buddha replied, quote, once there was an important Raja, a king, who assembled all the blind men in his kingdom in a courtyard. In the center of the courtyard was an elephant. One at a time, each of the blind men was led forward to put their hands on the elephant's body. One man touched the head, another the tusks, another the ears. And so it went, with each man feeling a different part of the elephant. After they were done, the Raja asked of each of them, what is this thing we call an elephant? The man who touched the head said, an elephant is like a pot. The man who touched the tail said, an elephant is a brush. The man who touched the tusk said an elephant is a spear. They each described the elephant according to what they touched. The Buddha used a story to teach the impossibility of absolutes. We all view the world differently because we're all different. For a systems biologist, there is a short but complex answer to questions like who is Alex or what is an elephant? Alex is a system. By the way, those of you who are joining, this is Dr. Shiva. I took about a eight-week hiatus, you know, I went to India, and I'm reading from the book System and Revolution, which I want to give to all of you guys for free, but I'm reading uh, a chapter from the book. So Alex is a system, ditto the elephant, but we can't know the true nature of the system until we see it in its entirety by knowing not the parts, but the interconnections. This brings up the important concept of reductionism. So you see, reductionism, by the way, is the opposite of a systems approach, which is where those in power want us to think. They don't want us to think and today's talk is about why we must learn to think and why it's important for our children. So this brings up, to, uh, uh, brings up the important concept of reductionism. In 1687, Isaac Newton published a great work entitled Principles of Natural Philosophy. Since then, Western science has been based on a simple and reasonably reliable assumption. To understand something in the natural world, take it apart. Want to understand a watch, take it apart and examine the pieces. Want to figure out why an engine runs or figure out how a human body functions, look at the parts one at a time. If you understand the parts, you can understand the whole. It's certainly easy to understand why this approach can be so appealing. Some things are so, 
are, are some things are simply too complex and huge to grasp any other way. It's complicated, so we reduce. It's a word that's where reductionism comes from to its smaller parts. This approach is known as reductionism. Let's follow reductionism to its logical conclusion. If it's informative to reduce something to smaller parts, wouldn't it be even more informed to reduce something to parts that are smallest possible? We can look at a tree and we have some general understanding of it, but can we have a deeper understanding of the tree if we look at the chemistry of the leaves or even the atomic structure of the leaves, the bark and the roots? The answer to this is both yes and no. Quantum physics, for example, is concerned with the smallest possible particles in the universe. To the extent we can understand those infinitely small particles, which isn't easy, we can understand what the universe really is at the most basic level. Great, but here's the problem. We don't experience a universe at the most basic level of its trillions of sub-microscopic parts. We experience it as an amalgamation of those parts that has become a vast interconnected system. It's true that atoms are almost completely empty space, but that fact isn't gonna help you if you get hit by a car. The reductionist for focus on separate parts can distract or even blind us to the reality of those parts as a whole system, especially when the whole system, as the saying goes, is somehow more than the sum of the parts. Reductionist science has, of course, contributed greatly to human knowledge. You see, reductionist science has helped us figure out the parts, but the limits of reductionism are apparent in our current healthcare establishment with its high costs, uneven quality of care, and drug development protocols that are expensive and slow. Reductionism fostered the modern healthcare system that was able to respond well to a crisis like an injury or an acute illness. But today there's a growing demand for a system that delivers prevention, can deal effectively with chronic conditions, and is considerate of the long-term effect of specific therapeutics, protocols, and procedures on a personalized level. The modern healthcare system came into being during the industrial era. It was structured to manage calamities of war, and the system itself followed a military model with doctors as offices and nurses as enlisted personnel. Those conditions encourage reductionist thinking. Wartime situation required a healthcare system that rewarded specialization and magic bullet solutions, a single drug, the right specialist or the right procedure to address immediate and catastrophic events. Reductionism was effective in that context, delivering life-saving solutions after the onset of a disease or injury. But reductionism now pervades all aspects of the modern healthcare system, including basic research, patient treatment, and drug development. We are literally using a health system designed for war and crisis to manage the day-to-day -day healthcare of modern life, which should be primarily based on prevention. Here's an example of this works. My friend recently visited their internist with a sinus infection. The internist sent her to an ENT, ear, nose, and throat specialist. The ENT examined her and made recommendation for me medication. My friend complained that a post-nasal drip making its way from the sinuses through her throat into her lungs was giving her a bad cough. The ENT said he was sorry, but the cough involved the lungs and he didn't treat anything below the neck. The reduction of the modern healthcare compels increasing specialization where problem is divided into many smaller problems. As medical consumers, we know how exasperating this is. We know that we can't always divide our bodies up into parts. We know that the foot bone is connected to the ankle bone and the ankle bone is connected to the shin bone and the shin bone is connected to the knee bone. Yet, if we have a foot pain and a knee pain, we have to visit at least two different doctors who will in all probability are not consulting with each other to determine if there's a connection. This is one of the 
problems associated with a reductionist approach to health. So by the way, I'm reading from System and Revolution, those of you joining new, and just to wrap it up, where we are right now is 21st century science is beginning to realize that a reductionist approach offers only parts of the solution. When you connect a bunch of things, whether they are auto parts or human parts, something emerges that is great and different than the sum of its parts. Take something as basic as a clock. If you took a clock apart, it's nothing more than a collection of old assorted pieces. Then it's put together in the right order with the right connections. A clock assumes an almost magical function in terms of what it does and how a reliance on an accurate reading of time impacts your world. If this is true for a clock, imagine what happens when you are talking about a living organism, whether it's a tree, an animal, or a human being. Or what we've talked about is when it's a complex system, political systems, right? Understanding a quote unquote, a pandemic, understanding election systems. Now systems thinking and systems biology specifically can help us to understand health and illness as a dynamic interconnection, okay? Now, what I wanna wrap up with is that a, a revolutionary principle of systems thinking is demanding to know how the parts relate and connect to the whole. If the information is withheld from you, you must find a way to get it. Remember, our goal collectively and individually is truth, freedom, and health. And settling for a small and mistaken shadow of truth, for example, thinking that just by buying a free speech platform, we're gonna get free speech, and Joe Biden is the enemy, that's, in my view, a shadow of the truth. Or thinking that if we just get this person elected, that we're going to solve the election issues, that's a, a shadow of the truth. Or thinking that, you know, if we take a reductionist solution, we're going to get health. These are shadows of truths, right? And settling for a small and mistaken shadow of truth is like one of those blind men with flawed sensors will only lead us away from the goal. So if we're committed to our goal, then getting that information mandates a certain necessary action. But if those in control refuse to take action to give us that information, then you must take action to see that the action gets done. Perhaps as Malcolm X said, by any means necessary. Anyway, what I wanna let you know is this book, I've coming back from India, I realized that one of the gifts I wanna do is a gift of education um, because as you know, over the last several years, we've taken on big issues. Um, many situations I've risked uh, my reputation, my life in other cases. And our movement in the next phase really demands that you become the change. You become the, the hero. And in order to do that, you're gonna need the tools of system thinking. So that's what I wanted to start off this next phase of our educational movement for truth, freedom, and health is to compel you to get educated. Um, and as a part of this, let me, I think I can share this, right, John? Yeah. Let me share this right here. As a part of this, I just want to share with you a couple of slides here. Um, oh, I guess I can't do this, huh? Oh, I see. I need to make this big. I need to make this big, let's see. Sometimes Chrome gives us this problem. Let's see if I can do this here. Oh, I guess I can't do it. Let me, um, essentially, if you go to uh, Systems Health, uh, if you go, I'm sorry, if you go to vashiva.com slash join, one of the things, things we've done is 
the course that we have, the foundations of systems, which took me many years to develop, I've made that um, we've given it's 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 a course that's it, it you know we've offered it at biggest universities, but we've given a very large scholarship to every adult, so it's even more accessible. But more importantly, we want to make all of you literally become philanthropists. Um, so it's not just billionaires or you know um, philanthropists. Once you take the course and you pass it, you have the right to give it to as many children as you want. So think about what I'm saying. Um, you can give this course to as many kids as you want, the Foundations of Systems course. So I want to encourage all of you to do that and take advantage of that. When I went to India, I went back to that village where I grew up and there's nearly 2,000 kids. And when, when I come back tomorrow, I'll play you some videos. We have some great video clips. Um, people are very excited that I came back. But one of the things I did was we gave this course to all the kids at no cost. So I want you to take the Foundations of Systems course so you learn how to think, learn to think in the modern world. And then you can be a philanthropist and give this course to, you want to give it to a million people, give it to them. You want to give it to a local school in your area, give it to them. But the bottom line is that our movement for truth, freedom, and health has had massive impact, so much impact that we have really open the eyes on elections in this country. We have changed the narrative on what it takes to get real health. We are really brought to the foundations of what it will take to get free speech, which is breaking this unholy alliance between government and big tech. So as we go into this next phase, I look forward to all of you um, being co-collaborators. Um, we're going to have videos where we want you to participate. We're going to do lots of panels. We want to highlight some of the successes that many of our warriors and scholars are having every day taking their course in, in their community. So that's uh, where it's going to get exciting because we're going to um, uh, really refine the point here that each one of you are heroes. And it's, it's a great honor for me to be back. And I look forward to working with all of you. Anyway, uh, be well, and I'll be back tomorrow, and I'm going to share with you some of the videos from my trip to India, and I'm going to talk to you about the Flexner Report. I'm going to talk to you about how the indigenous people that I grew up with have a whole different way of looking at health and the body as a system, and they still practice that today, and how the Flexner Report was a way of destroying traditional indigenous medicine. We'll talk about that tomorrow and what we can do to change that. So I hope um, to do that tomorrow. Thank you. What's that, John? Yeah. So one second, I'm going to just end this. Thank you. Be well.